stained glass window dedicated to the memory of Francis Lady Abergenny in Lincoln's Inn Chapel initially appears to be highly appropriate for this almost forgotten 16th century female writer. Considered to have produced one of the earliest examples of a mother's advice tract in English, we don't think of her as a prayer writer of the English Reformation, but rather as this window imagines her. Depicting a woman holding two infants and the quartered shield of Abergenny in paling manners, the window firmly establishes Lady Abergenny's familial position. Etched into the glass paid for by her grandson, she's confirmed in writing as a wife of Henry, Man uh, sorry, Henry Neville and the daughter of Thomas Manners, Earl of Rutland. Adjacent lights not shown here within the window commemorate her daughter, son-in-law and grandson. Indeed, remembered only as a daughter, wife, mother and grandmother, it seems that no more pertinent memorial could be imagined for a writer whose collection of prayers is entombed within Thomas Bentley's Monument of Matrons. But I think this purely maternal image of Abergenny actually obscures the reality of her written responses to the English Reformation. So in this paper, I want to do something that seems rather appropriate for a conference on the Reformation. I want to smash through the stained glass image and instead privilege the written word. Because I think by returning to the sources of Abergenny's writing and asking who intervened in the production and transmission of her prayers, then we can retrieve a forgotten history of writing and printing these texts. Enabling us not, uh, not only to gain a fresh appreciation of how this woman writer responded to the English Reformation, but to also find a series of male writers who over two centuries sought to appropriate her words and silence her public devotions. So I want to begin then by explaining what Lady Abergenny's writing is and isn't, but to do so we have to first excavate it from within the monument of matrons. Because as Margaret Easel has stated, the study of early women's texts is encrusted with several layers of assumptions that must be dug through before their works can be revisioned. And so before we can do that revisioning of Abergenny's prayers, we have to first expose her textual remains by breaking into the edifice created by Thomas Bentley. Because it's only by recognising how he constructed his printed mausoleum to women's writing that we can begin to uncover the forgotten history of Lady Abergenny's prayers. Now, the monument's preface tells us that Bentley intended to create the absolute and perfect book for the simplest sort of woman, giving his readers a taste of writing made by sundry right famous queens, noble ladies, virtuous virgins, and godly gentlewomen of all ages. And so alongside female voice texts from the Bible, Bentley also included in the monument works by Elizabeth I, Catherine Parr, Lady Jane Grey, Anne Askew, Elizabeth Tyrrett, and Lady Abergenny. Consequently, the monument has become to be understood as the earliest anthology of women's writing in English, and thus a repository of Protestant women's engagement with the Reformation. Yet as Joe and Colin Atkinson observed in the late 1980s, Bentley's use of his bibliographic sources is highly problematic. Indeed, research by the Atkinsons, John N. King and Kate Narveson, among others, has shown how Bentley was not above obscuring his sources, or silently lengthening, shortening, or even regendering the text he took to fill the monument. So I want to briefly look at a few examples of these interventions to understand why we can't take Bentley's positioning of his text at face value. Because this is essential for understanding what might have happened to Lady Abergenny's prayers as Bentley interred them in his textual monument. Now, perhaps the most obvious example is Bentley's treatment of Lady Jane Grey's execution speech. In its first printed form in 1554, the text is 234 words long. In Fox's Acts and Monument, the speech grows to 500 words, but in Bentley's version, it's called to a tenth of that, to meagre 54 words. And if we look at the place it inhabits within the monument, it seems quite possible that the text was trimmed and laid out specifically to fill space on the end of the page. 
Now, I think it's unlikely that this strange diminution could be mistaken as an original text. But now let's turn to a far less obvious example of Bentley's gleaning to see how he created new female texts from earlier printed books. The prayer of Anne Askew, the martyr before her death in the monument, is essentially the final words of the longer confession of her faith, which was initially printed in 1547 in the first examination of Anne Askew. Heavily interspersed by Bale's commentary in that edition, which is underlined in gold, the prayer is nevertheless identifiable by Bale's Bale's marginalia, which presents the final 44 words of the confession as Askew's prayer. By 1563, and with the inclusion of Askew's confession and acts and monuments, the marginalia identifying the prayer had moved 87 words earlier, and by the 1576 edition, that marginalia had again slipped a further 14 words to mark the start of the 145 words that Bentley chose to call Askew's prayer. So in this transmission history, we can see how Bale, Fox, and then Bentley all contributed to the shaping of Askew's prayers. But while the paratext of Bale and Fox shaped that prayer within the context of the longer confession, Bentley simply, and without acknowledgement, extracted a section of the writing to make a new and shorter text. So reading Askew within the monument is a complex affair. The supposed prayer by her has a history of being shaped by the hands of male editors, and yet this work is presented to the monument's readers as solely Askew's text. And this is not the only female prayer where we can find Bentley slicing from Acts and Monuments. The prayers of the martyrs Agnes and Eulalia and Bentley can also be traced directly back to Fox. So again, rather than giving us authentic female writing, Bentley is instead presenting us with heavily mediated texts gleaned from earlier printed works. Now, perhaps Bentley's interventions in these four texts is unimportant. After all, the Gray and Askew texts exist elsewhere in better-known and more widely read editions. And it's unlikely that anyone would believe that Bentley really had access to the original words of women martyred a millennium earlier. But what really interests me here is whether this digging about in the origins of the monument's text is actually starting to dislodge some of the encrusted assumptions we have about Bentley's work. Is his treatment of these female prayers evidence of a pattern in the compilation and material history of the text that he uses? Because if it is, then what does it mean for Lady Abbevigeni's prayers that we think only survive today because Bentley had access to her private and unpublished manuscripts? Well, did he? Or did he find her prayers elsewhere? Well, Bentley certainly doesn't tell us where he found Lady Abbevigeni's prayers from. Instead, he tells us only that she's the Right Honourable Francis, Francis Abbevigeni, and that at the hour of her death, she dedicated a collection of 49 prayers to her only daughter, Mary Fane. And it's this paratext that's determined how Abbevigeni's prayers have been understood ever since. We sort of imagine Abbevigeni on her deathbed, thrusting pages of handwritten prayers into her daughter's hands. Yet, are her prayers really mother's advice texts for her daughter? Well, Bentley attributes two prayers relating to childbirth to Abbevigeni, which coupled with the acrostic prayer that spells out her daughter's name, certainly implies there's a maternal quality to some of her prayers. But it's only three out of the 49 prayers that are explicitly motherly. So what about the others? Well, there are at least six that dwell on battle and adversity, yet that's not the kind of prayer writer we think she is. Nor do we think she's uh, a writer who produces daily devotional texts covering prayers to be said in the morning, in the evenings, before sermons, and after the Lord's Supper. Instead, we think of her writing belonging entirely to the mother's advice genre. But we need to think that because that's what Bentley's told us it is. And I think because of his bibliographic interventions in other texts, we ought to be really careful about taking his word for what Lady Abbott prayers really are. 
So I began this section of my paper by saying I wanted to explain what her writing is and isn't. Well, I'm not sure I've entirely done that yet, but what I'm hope I'm starting to show is that Bentley is an unreliable anthologist and that therefore there may be more to Abbott prayers than has previously been assumed. So to appreciate the extent to which Bentley may have shaped our interpretation of Abbott words, we have to return to his sources for her writing. Yet this is difficult if we believe that he had access to her private and now lost manuscripts. Because unlike the Gray and Askew text, there's no earlier printed edition that we can make comparisons with. But I think within the prayers themselves are evidence of Abbevigeni's own sources, which can offer us another route into locating the forgotten material history of her prayers. Now, Patricia Demers has argued that Abbevigeni's familiarity with the Bible enabled her to produce a series of formulaic utterances but I'm not sure that does full justice to how the prayers were written. So to explain what I mean, let's look at the composition of just one of those prayers, which is the uh, comfortable exhortations against the manifold Satan, assaults of Satan, which is quite difficult to say. Uh, now, this long prayer at just over a thousand words tells us that it wasn't just the Geneva Bible that was a creative influence. In fact, we can find that the writer is reading Erasmus, and we know that because approximately the first third of the prayer is taken directly from various sections within a 1561 English abridgment of the Manual of a Christian Knight. Uh, she's a godly book, and uh, this slide shows just a couple of examples. There's about 300 words that are lifted uh, from Erasmus. But it's not just Erasmus that's inspired this prayer. Almost two-thirds of it is from a text attributed to John Chrysostom, and the final section is from a work attributed to Matthew Gribaldi with a preface by Calvin. So the whole prayer is stitched together from these three texts and shows that our writer was engaging with more than just the Geneva Bible. In fact, if we look across the 49 prayers, we find that the Abbevigeni writings share numerous similar phrases with Golding's translations to Calvin, with Thomas Beacon, Miles Coverdale, and with 15th and 16th century editions of the writings of St. Augustine and Bernard of Clairvaux, which I think provides us with an indication of our writer's religio-cultural engagement with the Reformation. Not only is the Bible being read, but so too is a vast number of contemporary texts, which include sermons, everyday prayers, meditations on living well, and dying better. And not only is our writer reading these texts, but she's also actively intervening in them, slicing works together uh, to create elegant new devotional tracks, which I think means that these prayers are something far more complex than formulaic utterances. I think it does Abbevigeni a huge disservice to imagine that her religious knowledge was learned purely from the Bible, but from female-centric texts, as Demma seems to suggest. Instead, I think her writing tells us that she was well-read, that she thought and wrote in a reformist lexicon, and was capable of producing new work through the highly skilled creative assimilation of a number of religious texts. We therefore ought to think of her writing as a participative act in the English Reformation, but we don't. We barely think about it at all. Yet, yeah, I'm absolutely convinced that if these prayers were available in other printed forms than just the monuments matrons, we'd have a completely different understanding of the text. And so to explain why I'm quite so sure about that rather bold statement, we have to return to the thorny question of Bentley's sources for Abbevigeni's writing. Did he really have access to her manuscripts? Well, the Stationers' Register for 1577, the year after Abbevigeni's death, provides us with a significant clue to the origins of her prayers. In December of that year, a text called The Precious Pearls of Perfect Godliness was printed by Hugh Jackson, apparently after being begun by the Lady Frances Abbevigeni and finished by John Philip. 
Now, there aren't believed to be any surviving copies of that work, but 11 years later, in 1588, Jackson printed a collection of prayers by Phillips called The Perfect Path to Paradise, which partially shared a title, which is badly underlined here in gold, with Abbevigeni's work in the monument. So what might this same printer and the shared imagery of The Perfect Path to Paradise mean for how we understand the origins of the Abbevigeni prayers? Well, initially, Phillips's collection of 71 prayers bears little resemblance to the 49 prayers Bentley attributes to Abbevigeni. Phillips's work includes a series of seven graces after meat, for which there's no equivalent in the Abbevigeni work. Equally, the two acrostic prayers based on Abbevigeni and her daughter's names have no similarities in Phillips's text. However, both collections include prayers written in metre and prayers for women to say in childbirth. Although perhaps rather surprisingly, Phillips's work contains one more pregnancy-related prayer than Abbevigeni. But despite that, it's worth noting that his work isn't considered to be an example of the mother's advice genre. Anyway, these thematic and stylistic comparisons are not the only similarities between Abbevigeni and Phillips. Let's compare the first lines of the two opening prayers within their collections. I'll read aloud Abbevigeni's prayer so you can compare it to Phillips, which is the second extract on this slide. Almighty God and most merciful Father, the fountain of all felicity, from whom only proceedeth all good gifts, most humbly I beseech thee of thine abundant mercy and exceeding kindness, so to direct and govern me this day and ever with thy guiding spirit. So as you can see, these extracts are remarkably similar. But not only do the two prayers begin almost identically, they also end with the same line, grant this, O merciful God, for the honour and glory of thy namesake. In fact, read both texts in full and there can be no doubt these are the same prayers with only minor discrepancies and marginally altered titles. And the similarities between Abbevigeni and Phillips don't end there. As we can see from the examples on this slide, the prayers in both books have identical or comparable titles. In fact, Phillips's 1588 book contains every single prayer but two attributed to Abbevigeni in the monument. So in the monument, the work is attributed only to her, her, but in the 1588 Perfect Path, it's only attributed to him. I think it's therefore very likely that the Precious Pearls, begun by her and finished by him, is fundamentally the same work as the Perfect Path, because that would explain why we can find the same collection of prayers under both Abbevigeni and Phillips' names. And if they are the same work, I think it means that Bentley probably didn't have access to Abbevigeni's private and unpublished manuscripts. Instead, he called the prayers from a now-lost printed book and then purposely omitted Phillips's contribution to the work. Therefore, Bentley's intervention succeeded in feminising the reading of the entire text, but by doing so, he didn't succeed in preserving this female writer. Instead, he completely buried her within the monument. For The Perfect Path wasn't just printed in 1588. In fact, if we excavate Abbevigeni's textual remains from the monument, we can see that this jointly authored text went through six editions between 1577 and 1626, all of which tells us that 16th and 17th century writers didn't think these were mother's advice prayers. Indeed, the book from 1624 lists the perfect path among many Protestant helps for devotion, placing it alongside the works of Catherine Parr, Thomas Beacon, John Stubbs and Miles Coverdale, among many others. So here then, I think we can see an alternative material history for Abbevigeni's prayers emerging. Had Bentley, Phillips and Jackson not obscured her co-authorship of these texts, we might understand her to be a significant female writer of the English Reformation, whose work remained in print over 50 years, spanning two centuries and three monarchs. 
But 1626 doesn't represent the end of the printed history of Abba Vigeni's prayers. For one prayer, a fruitful prayer to be said at the going to bed of every Christian, had an even longer publication history. Abbreviated and amended slightly in 1641, it became an evening prayer for Wednesday nights and was attributed to John Collett, an English theologian who died in 1519. And that prayer was reprinted a further five times, meaning that Abergenny's writing was in circulation in some form from 1577 until 1722. And actually it was in circulation for even longer than that, because in 1812, in a rather strange quirk of fate, we can find it being given as a gift from a mother to her daughter 230 years after Bentley claimed these were a mother's prayers. So where is all this taking us? Well, I think that we can see that Abergenny's prayers have an extremely complex material history. Not only do the texts owe a significant debt to the printed words of a number of English and continental reformers, but they're almost certainly partly authored by John Phillips and have been printed under his name, her name, and that of the proto-reformist John Collett all of which gives us a real challenge in understanding the specific nature of Abba Vigeni's involvement in the prayers that have simultaneously existed as hers and Philip's. Now, time prevents me from discussing this in any great detail today, but I think that rather subtle stylistic quirks in the prayers means it's possible to identify two distinct authorial techniques in the writing. And then if we count the prayers in both styles, we can see that author A and author B count for about half of the prayers each meaning that Abba Vigeni and Phillips were joint authors of these daily devotional texts that were read until the 19th century. Which is why I don't think that the posthumous collaboration that delivered Abba Vigeni's prayers to her initial readership should distract us from this woman's engagement with the Reformation in England. Because I think Abba Vigeni, even allowing for Phillips' textual co-presence in the prayer, is still a formidable early modern female writer. The text that once bore her name remained in circulation until at least the early 19th century, and were believed during all that time to be the works of 16th century male clerics. For not only was Colette the, dawn, uh, the Dean of St Paul's, the 17th century editions of Perfect Path erroneously described Phillips as a late preacher of the word of God. Now, Alexandra Walsham considers this to be a market employed to sell the quasi-clerical Perfect Path, which it may have been. But what it tells us is that Abba Vigeni's religious writing was of sufficient quality to pass as that of an educated male cleric. So she couldn't have been writing female-centric or a mother's vice prayers, because that would have been really noticeable coming from a cleric. Instead, Abba Vigeni wrote gender-neutral texts actively and intelligently engaged with the religio-cultural nature of the Reformation in England. She produced texts suitable for public devotion that were read by generations of readers who were unable to tell the difference between her, Phillips, and Colette. It's not bad for a female writer who the Victorians dismissed as being utterly devoid of literary merit. So to conclude then, I think there remains an awful lot more research to be done on Lady Apovgeny's prayers. I said I would explain what her prayers are and aren't, and whilst I hope I've gone some way to saying what they're not, I think there remains much more work to be done on what they really are. Not least the question of exactly what and who are we reading when we engage with her in Thomas Bentley's monument. And then what happens to that engagement when we read her again within the context of Phillips' perfect path? Which leads me then to end with Helen Smith's observation in the material of writing, quote, women are more present than has been assumed, even in books securely attributed to male authors. And certainly in the forgotten history of writing and printing Lady Abbevigeny's prayers, Smith's claim seems to be true, which I think leads us to ask whether we may find other women's responses to the Reformation buried deep within male texts. Thank you.